0: I'm Glenn McGregor and Joyce Napier is away today.
1: Today on Question Period, gun legislation opposition. We will continue to take the time that is necessary to make whatever fine tuning to the language of the amendment to make sure that we get it right. Debate over the Liberal government's gun bill
0: remains unresolved as the House of Commons adjourns for the year. What could happen to the last minute amendment that would ban many hunting rifles? Was including the amendment a political mistake? We'll speak to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Then, Conservative check-in.
1: What's Trudeau's solution to all this? He and the costly coalition want to drive up inflation further.
0: What are the Conservative Party of Canada's priorities heading into the new year? Is the party now united after a divisive leadership race? Conservative House Leader Andrew Scheer will be here for a year-end interview on behalf of his party. Plus, back to the office.
2: We are shifting from a remote by necessity to a hybrid by design.
0: The federal government will now require public servants to work two to three days a week in person starting in the spring. But unions say they're not satisfied with the reasons for the mandate. Public Service Alliance of Canada President Chris Aylward joins us. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. The heat surrounding the Liberal government's contentious gun legislation shows no signs of cooling even after the House adjourned for the holidays. Bill C-21 was first tabled more than a year ago and focused on a freeze on the sale or transfer and purchase of handguns, along with a series of other gun control regulations. It passed second reading, but the introduction of two amendments in November are raising concerns from hunting groups, gun rights advocates and MPs on both sides of the aisle. At issue, an amendment on the definition of a prohibited firearm. And the other is a 300-page list of what guns would now be banned. Critics say the proposed definition catches many guns used for hunting. This all comes as Alberta says it's preparing to take over the prosecution of federal firearms charges starting in the new year. And the province also issued an advisory document for provincial prosecutors to use when deciding whether to pursue a firearms charge. It's Alberta's latest pushback in federal gun legislation.
3: Originally when Bill C-21 was proposed they had this fig leaf that they were trying to claim that this had nothing to do with targeting hunters or uh, farmers or sports shooters. And I think we've seen that uh, fig leaf being taken away with these proposed amendments. This is uh, very political. This is not about uh, targeting safety. So. Can the Liberals gun control
0: bill be saved? And was including the amendments at the 11th hour a political mistake? Joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Minister, welcome. Uh, Let's start with a definition. You say the bill is intended to prohibit assault rifles. There's not really any consensus on what exactly that means, kind of above and beyond the schedule of specific firearms you've listed. What in your view is an assault rifle?
1: Well, it, an assault rifle is uh, a firearm that is prohibited because it was either uh, designed for military use or it is uh, too dangerous to be used uh, for civilian purposes. Uh, and so that's the point of, of coming up with an, a, a model agnostic uh, definition, which is, of course, the subject of a debate uh, through these two amendments in Bill C-21 before the committee. I will say, Glenn, just before throwing it back to you, that we acknowledge that there have been concerns, which is why we're going to take the time to make whatever fine-tuning to the language and and get this right. And that includes having a robust dialogue with hunters and Indigenous persons and farmers and uh, people right across the the spectrum. Uh, What's important, though, is that we base the debate on facts, not fear, and that is something that we're committed to doing. And there's a lot of other good things in Bill C-21, like a national handgun freeze, raising maximum sentences against gun traffickers but we want to make sure we get these amendments right
0: yeah but you said you have no intention of outlawing hunting guns um but it's pretty clear these amendments could have that effect in certain cases because they broaden the type of rifles that are prohibited even in some cases you know what 22 caliber used people used to shoot gophers could be covered depending on its design this seems like a real overreach in this bill
1: well, you're absolutely right uh the government's intent here is to ban those air 15 style guns which have been uh, used in Porto Pic and Truro, nova scotia polytechnique uh i've agreed with those families we never want another one of those again the purpose of this bill is not to target uh, guns which are commonly used for hunting or uh in indigenous traditions and that's why we are going to go over the amendments with the fine-tooth comb and make sure that there isn't any inadvertent overreach and uh, make sure that we have the dialogue that is necessary so we're going to support the committee we're going to engage across the country we are going to get this right it's too important not to we have to eradicate gun violence once and for all
0: but these amendments they came really late in the legislative process Um, why was there not more consultation previously with indigenous groups with
1: hunting groups Well, we've been consistent and clear all along. And let's take a step back for a moment. We uh, put in place a national assault uh, style firearm ban in 2020, which had criteria that were there. And when we tabled the legislation uh, under Bill C-21 last spring, we did say very clearly that we had a a willingness to work with the community uh, to uh, work in an amendment that would create, again, a model agnostic definition. uh, The purpose of which is to take... Uh, some of the cherry picking uh, which can lead to the politicization uh, through uh selection of models out of the system and rather come up with objective criteria now admittedly uh it is an emotional debate and whether you're the family of a victim or you are a hunter or an indigenous person um it's this can be an emotionally charged subject which is why again we've got to proceed thoughtfully we've got to proceed uh, civilly and we also have to proceed on the basis of facts That's precisely what we're going to do.
0: But in its current form, the bill is opposed not only by Conservatives but also by the NDP, the Assembly of First Nations and even some members of your own caucus. This is beyond your traditional critics like the firearms lobby. It seems like a pretty clear signal that you maybe rush this and need to rethink it.
1: Well, and that's why earlier this week we acknowledged that we hear concerns loud and clear. I was very proud to stand with with members of our caucus, including from rural and Indigenous uh, communities. Uh, to say that we are going to take the time to make uh, whatever fine-tuning to these amendments to get it right. But I also want to point out that there is strong multi-partisan support for the remainder of Bill C-21, which includes common sense policies like our national handgun freeze, uh, raising maximum sentences against hardened gun traffickers, red flag, yellow flag uh, protocols. So there's a lot of good in this bill, and our commitment is to continue to have a thoughtful, responsible debate based on facts to get the amendments right so that we can pass all of this in the new year.
0: Right. Uh, If you can get it through, if you can get it passed, I'm sort of struggling to see how you're going to make sure it's enforced, especially in Alberta, where you're going to need the RCMP, the Provincial Police Force, to implement the buyback program. What do you do if the Premier Daniel Smith tells them not to? Or if Tyler Shandro, as we heard this week, the Justice Minister, tells Crown prosecutors not to take these cases to trial?
1: Well, I think Albertans, like all Canadians, expect governments at every level to work together when it comes to public safety. And the pith and substance of Bill C-21 is about the promotion of public safety through responsible gun control, which is why it falls validly within the domain of criminal law. Um, This is a subject matter that has been resolved by the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, for more than 20 years. And when it comes to implementing the administration of justice uh, every day, uh, we do work very closely with uh, provinces and territories, including Alberta, but you can't treat the criminal code like an a la carte menu. You can't pick which criminal uh, code laws you want to enforce and which you don't that's been well settled uh, as a constitutional principle. For well a sure long sure time.
0: that's that's that, that's the constitutional principle. If you want to take that to the Supreme Court in 2 to 3 years, that's fine, but you want to implement this bill as quickly as possible, you're heading for a collision course if Danielle Smith and Tyler Shandro make good on that promise not to act on it, what are you going to do?
1: Well, I I don't think there's uh, any kind of effective go-it-alone approach when it comes to public safety. And we do cooperate with Alberta on an array of public safety priorities, including on First Nations policing. Uh, We'll continue to work with uh, them on this bill. Uh, And, you know, at the end of the day, again, this requires collaboration, all levels of government have to work together to keep communities safe we owe it to everyone but, th- but those, those
0: aren't those aren't contentious issues in the same way that the gun buyback program is going to be you, you know this is a very loaded issue if you forget the expression in, in alberta and it's one uh it's it's a, almost a cultural issue it's not like just first nations policing this is something you, you ha- could have a potential conflict uh very early in the new year as soon as as soon as you get this passed
1: Well, the motivation is to prevent another mass casualty the motivation is to prevent another gun tragedy from occurring and when it comes to the buyback the rationale is quite simple Uh, ar-15 style guns guns which were designed for the battlefield have no place in our communities. And we've engaged with law enforcement. We've engaged with provinces and territories. Uh, the bedrock of this country is that different levels of government will collaborate to keep our communities <coughs> safe. That's our focus. And we'll get this done.
0: W- with this expanded list of firearms that are, are going to be covered, what is the projected cost of buying them all back? I mean, Canadians are always suspicious about this because of what happened with the long gun registry. They're not confident that you could bring this in on your target. So, So what is your new projected cost of what it's going to the federal government will pay to buy all these guns back
1: well we're going to be up front with canadians about costing and we're taking the time that is necessary to uh, launch this program in the right way Um, we've had already some very strong uh, and 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 productive preliminary conversations with law enforcement around costing and uh, when it comes time to launch Um, we are going to be uh, again very very clear about that i'll also say that It is important to me that we are fair and equitable to law-abiding gun owners because we respect the fact that when they bought these guns, they were legal. Um, At the same time, again, the point of the, the buyback program is to keep our community safe. Um, by getting these guns out of our communities while at the same time having a fair compensation in place uh, to incent those law-abiding gun owners to come forward. We'll do it safely, securely, and as economically and fiscally responsible as we can.
0: Are are you confident that gun owners, legal gun owners, are going to get a fair price for their firearms that they are forced to sell back to you? And will they have an appeal mechanism if they don't think they're going to get one?
1: i am confident because we are consulting we are having a dialogue with industry leaders and uh, again i think it is through uh, having a discussion that is uh, that is very much motivated by the right thing which is to keep our community safe um, we can get there Um, this is an important program it's the first of its kind in canada uh, when in terms of it being on a national scale and, uh, and we are going to put those contours into place and operationalize it through a lot of collaboration, including with our provincial and territorial partners.
0: Great. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, thanks for joining us today.
1: Happy holidays, Glenn.
0: Coming up, Conservative check-in. The Conservative Party has been under new leadership for nearly four months. With debate over inflation, healthcare and foreign policy dominating in the House of Commons, what are the official opposition's priorities heading into the new year? Opposition House Leader Andrew Scheer joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. The Conservative Party of Canada is heading into the new year with a new direction. The party kicked off 2022 under Erin O'Toole's leadership, but another lost general election and disagreements within the party led to the Conservatives' third leader in five years being ousted by caucus and stepping down. O'Toole's resignation spurred a six month leadership contest marked by vitriol and personal attacks. Still, candidates sold record memberships, and the Conservative Party swelled to become the largest party in Canadian history. Longtime MP Pierre Polyev took over the top spot after a massive majority win on the first ballot in September. And since then, he's sparred with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, especially over how to curb inflation and the high cost of living. Poliav also said in November, quote, it feels like everything is broken in this country right now. So how do the Conservatives plan to fix the big issues facing Canadians? And what are the party's priorities heading into the new year? Joining me now from his riding in Regina is opposition House Leader Andrew Scheer. Mr. Scheer, welcome. Uh, your party has really focused over the past few months on inflation, blaming it on the Trudeau government spending. But the Conservatives agreed with a lot of that spending on pandemic relief that caused massive increase in the national debt. If you knew this was going to have an inflationary effect, why did your party support it?
3: Well, what we didn't support was the billions of uh, new spending that had nothing to do with COVID. The Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, concluded that 40% of the new spending that Justin Trudeau racked up over the last few years had nothing to do with COVID at all. Uh, we can think of the f- uh, over $50 million wasted on the Arrive Can app, billions of dollars uh, sent in CERB payments to prisoners, uh, people who had d- deceased and public servants who had never lost their jobs in the first place. So uh, th- that is the root cause of the inflation that Canadians are suffering. From now. Uh, that's why we've been so focused on it to get a grip on the inflationary spending that's causing the pain and suffering that so but many Canadian but families Well, but most are experiencing. economists,
0: as you know, think, think that, that those amounts of money, although they're big dollar figures in the greater scheme of the Canadian economy, are very small and unlikely to be a huge driver of inflation. Well,
3: you know when you talk about a government that has uh, racked up hundreds of billions of dollars in new debt when 40% of that had nothing to do with covid at all that is very significant and that is what caused inflation the bank of canada bankrolled trudeau's deficits by buying government bonds and flooding the financial system with brand new cash uh, the conservative plan is to create more of uh, help canadians create more of what cash buys not just run the printing presses at the central bank uh, that's why interest rates are going up that that's why grocery prices are going up, that's why more and more Canadians are turning to food banks and that's why the only way to solve this problem is to stop the inflationary spending uh, that Justin Trudeau started in the first place. One of
0: the big stories this year we're looking back on is the Freedom Convoy. You were uh, one of, um, of several Conservative MPs who went out on the streets to show support for them. We've seen polling that shows that most Canadians oppose the convoy, even in the prairies. Was this a miscalculation and is it a mistake that could come back to haunt the Conservatives in the next election?
3: Uh, standing up for people's individual liberty and freedom is always the right thing to do. Even despite the effects this
0: the convoy had on the Canadian economy, on people here in Ottawa?
3: I would say it was Justin Trudeau's... Uh Uh, renewed lockdowns at a time when much of the world was opening up including provincial governments here in Canada his decision to add new uh, restrictions at that time that was the cause of 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 what happened and as I said you know uh, it doesn't matter to me what polls say about uh, fighting for individual liberty and the rights of people to make their own health care decisions the right to express themselves the right to peacefully protest Uh, I I don't look at polls when it comes to supporting uh, those individuals who are fighting for those freedoms, uh, I I do it because it's the right thing to do.
0: Okay. Let's let's look ahead to the year coming up. Uh, When MPs come back in January, is there a specific issue other than the cost of living that Conservatives are going to be focusing their opposition on?
3: Well, that's the five alarm fire that Canadians are experiencing. You know, I talk to a lot of constituents every day who are, for example, uh, having to renew their mortgage, and many of them have uh, had a fixed rate from four or five years ago that are now renewing uh, three, four, five percentage points higher. Uh, that, that means the difference between somebody being able to stay in their own home or being forced to move because they can't afford uh, their new mortgage payment. Those higher interest costs are a result of the inflationary deficits that Justin Trudeau uh, plunged this country into. So uh, we're going to stay focused on fighting that inflation. We're the only party, by the way, we're the only party that understands what causes inflation. Uh, the other parties are calling for even more spending that's just gonna make the problem worse and in addition we're the only party uh, calling on the government to stop making the problem worse Uh, Justin Trudeau can help deal with inflation today by canceling his plans to raise the carbon tax Uh, despite all the bluster we see from the NDP from time to time about addressing the cost of living they actually voted against conservative motions to remove uh, the carbon tax from home heating as we head into these winter months so uh, our focus is going to be on ending the inflationary spending and stop making the problem worse with these Trudeau tax hikes. Yeah,
0: we hear this phrase from your MPs all the time, triple, triple, triple the carbon tax, but we haven't seen any kind of cogent, realistic climate change plan from the Conservative Party. What's that going to be?
3: Well, how many times do you ask uh, Justin Trudeau when he's going to have his environment plan ready to go? He's been Prime Minister for seven years. He still doesn't have a climate plan. He's got a tax plan that has failed in reducing emissions. It's succeeded in making the cost of everything go up, but it hasn't, uh, it hasn't helped him hit a single uh, target that he set for himself. So uh, as, as our, our new leader, Pierre uh, Polyev, has laid out, that our focus will be on reducing emissions uh, through incentives, uh, through uh, investments in technology. and. Uh, Uh, and innovative ways to uh, reduce our carbon footprint as a country, uh, but not by raising the cost of everyday essentials, not by, for example, uh, driving up the cost of home heating, and most importantly, not driving emissions up by displacing Canadian production and Canadian development overseas to countries like China that do not have an environment plan of their own, that don't have anywhere near the same environmental safeguards that we have. Justin Trudeau's policies have, for example, made Europe more dependent Mm -hmm. on Russian uh, energy. It's made more production go to countries uh, like China, for example. As a result, global emissions go up, Canadian jobs go overseas. Uh, as you say, Mr. Polyakov is still a new leader, just over three
0: months in the job. So, sort of drawing on your experience in that position, what kind of advice have you given to him on, on leading the party and and looking ahead towards leading it into an election?
3: Well, you know, uh, I, I, if you look at Pierre's amazing leadership campaign, uh, he has broke the mold on on, on so much of, of, uh, of, of leadership politics, uh, massive uh, new engagement in our party, uh, rallies that had thousands and thousands of people at them, many of whom had never uh, been to a, a political event in their life. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that he needs too much advice from from former leaders as he uh, charts his path, but my advice is always to, uh, you know, be your yourself and fight for what you believe in, that's something that Pierre has done his entire life. Uh, the types of issues that he's focused on now, his his, his rock solid belief in in uh, limited government but unlimited potential for Canadian uh, citizens, that, that is something that he has consistently fought for his whole political career and it's just exciting to see him uh, t- take the reins at our party at this time and uh, and he's got a, a united team behind him now and everyone is, is excited. Uh, to, to get back in February and start to, 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 to lay out the track for the next uh, general election.
0: Uh, I'm talking to you here at the year-end, not to the leader. Uh, he is not, has not been accessible to the media uh, as you were when, when you were leader. Uh, he rarely does press conferences, chooses to do one-on-one interviews with sort of hand-picked journalists. Is that going to change in the new year? Is he going to have to pivot on that? Or are we going to have a better chance to put questions to him on behalf of Canadians?
3: Well, I I, I reject the premise of your question. I I see on social media all the time he sits down with large groups of reporters from a multitude, a wide variety of media outlets. But not from uh, the parliamentary press gallery, as you know. He he doesn't talk to the parliamentary press gallery. I don't know if, if you think that those uh, other reporters and those other journalists are somehow second-class no, uh, second sec- they're, they're journalists. they're not second-hand, not. but we follow uh, politics very closely. No, no,
0: Mr. Shear, we we follow it, politics really closely here. Our job is to put questions to politicians on Parliament Hill on behalf of our viewers, readers, and listeners, and he doesn't make himself accessible for that. Why not?
3: Well, I, I, I've seen him do uh, uh, press conferences in the foyer of the House of Commons. We had uh, representatives of uh, of the media, of the Parliamentary Press Gallery, in our caucus room just the other day. So uh, I think you're going to continue to see Pierre using a wide variety of ways to get his message out to Canadians from coast to coast.
0: We don't know when that uh, next election is going to be. It's going to depend in large part on how long this NDP Liberal confidence and supply agreement holds up. How long do you think that will last?
3: Well, you know, I, there's only one person who, who, who knows that, or two people maybe, uh, uh, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau. Uh, one thing I know for sure is that they're not going to put Canadians' best interests uh, at the forefront when they make those decisions. It's going to be based on their own personal calculations for what's good for their own particular parties. If they truly had Canadians' best interests at heart, they would have supported our calls to take the uh, carbon tax off of home heating, to cancel the plans to triple, triple, triple the carbon tax. Uh, I, I, try not to, I, I try not to spend too much time kind of uh, analyzing the stars, so to speak, and predict when that's going to be. But I do know that if our party stays focused on talking about the real issues that are affecting Canadians, mortgage rates going up, uh, food bank usage going up, students having to uh, have uh, you know choose between uh, eating and paying their tuition, uh, those are the types of things I hear when I come back to my riding and, and visit with my constituents. So the kind of political calculation about when the next election may or may not happen. Uh, I don't find that very productive. I'll leave that to uh, other panellists who I'm sure you've got on your show today who, who, who do get uh, paid to spend their time thinking about that.
0: Opposition House Leader Andrew Scheer, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you. When
0: we come back, back to the office. Federal public servants will soon be mandated to work in person for the part of the week. But unions of those employees are strongly opposed. Public Service Alliance of Canada President Chris Aylward and Professional Institute of the Public Service President Jennifer Carr are here next to tell us why. Stay right here with Question Period. Reigniting the work from home debate. Nearly three years into the pandemic, the federal government will soon be mandating public servants back to the office.
2: We knew that it was a hybrid by design and we mentioned to the organizations please experiment, look at how you can best uh, serve Canadians. And after six months we realized that there was inconsistencies in the system, for example fairness and equity.
0: The new hybrid work model will see public service workers in the office for two to three days per week or for between 40 and 60% of their regular schedule. Full implementation of the model will come into effect March 31st. So, why are unions representing public servants pushing back? To discuss that, we're joined by Public Service Alliance of Canada President Chris Aylward and Jennifer Carr, who is the President of the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada. Uh, Mr. Aylward, I'm going to s- uh, start with you. A lot of public servants are already going back to work several days a week. Why is there such opposition to this plan?
4: Well, look, I mean, we're not asking for, you know, everybody to work 100% remotely. That's not what we're asking for at all. We're basically asking for the government to sit down and talk to us about, uh, about this plan. Because it's clear to us there's real no, no plan this government has to make this work for workers. Uh, in the workplace now where our members are going in occasionally, right. it's total chaos. Uh, there, there's no chairs to sit at, there, or there's no desk to sit at. So the workplace right now is just total chaos, even for our members who are going in occasionally. So the government, obviously, this is just bad t- uh, timing, and they, they really don't have a true plan to see this So, through.
0: so that's, that's a sort of detailed planning issue, but on, on sort of the more the, the fundamental issue, um, the, the president of the Treasury Board, Mona Fortier, says the location of work is the right of the employer. Is, is that not fair?
2: It is the priority of the employer, but it, it makes no sense in terms of if you are looking uh, strategically into um, you know achieving what the government wants, which is you know a, a smaller greener footprint, reduced operating costs. Um, my motto is presence with purpose. if there is reasons to come into the workplace, if there's reasons to be collaborating in person, that makes sense. but my members are paid for the work that they produce and not where they produce it from. Okay.
0: Mona Fortier also said this is really about equity and fairness, and we've seen different departments, different agencies are using different models. Uh, Would it not benefit from a sort of a universal uh, approach to this, so everybody's working on sort of the same terms?
4: But they're not going to be, and that's the problem with this. I mean, it's not truly equitable. Uh, When you look at what the government uh, announced just uh, yesterday, this is not equitable uh, at all. Uh, So for for, uh, Minister Forche to say that, I mean basically to say that this is about, you know, uh, being equitable and being fair and consistent across the government. It's not going to be, because again, have they explained how this is going to be truly uh, implemented fairly and consistently? No, they haven't, because they don't, again, they don't have a plan to do that, to make sure that it's implemented fairly and consistently across the government.
2: And by design, you know, blanket statement policies are not equitable. They don't take into account individual needs. So actually most members were... um, I, I would say insulted by the, the comment that it would make it more equitable and diversified. Uh, we have members who, um, you know, have disabilities mm. and they have found a more equitable, more uh, product, uh, like a, a space where they can work in a more productive manner and to be called into to a, a, a spot where they find less equity, mm. it's concerning.
0: But the thing about the Canadians who are not in the public service uh, and maybe not in this town because there's more sensitivity to it here, everybody knows public servants here, Looking from the outside in, um, they wonder about productivity, about uh, you know why public servants should be given this disposition to to keep working from home. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I, I would say that your reporters in the scrum asked Minister Forte very tough questions that she couldn't ask or uh, couldn't answer yeah. efficiently. We know that our members have been working efficiently and effectively uh-huh. over the last two and a half years from a work from home posture, delivering services and benefits to Canadians consistently. So um, the the old school rhetoric that you, know, you can only be productive if you're in a workplace is an outdated policy that needs to be re- rethought. The government used to be a leader. They used to be uh, a place where they could attract talent. Yeah. Um, and, and going to a uh, blanket policy of returning to the office is going to hinder that. We have recruited uh, members who live outside of the city uh, and are per- uh, were hired for the uh, products that they were produced, their expertise, and those uh, those opportunities would but never have existed if they were in a work uh, in Ottawa position.
0: But but you look at you know from people outside the public service, their their interface uh, with the federal government is often things like the passport office. We've seen all these problems there. Uh, do you have any metrics to kind of like s- to show that? public servants working at home are actually as productive or more productive than they were in the office?
4: We know that our members work more actually than what they're actually paid for during the day when they're working remotely and, and right. they've told us that. Right. Uh, so, but yet the government can't demonstrate otherwise. They can't demonstrate here are pre-COVID production numbers and here's, you know, COVID production numbers. So this is just not working. What do you tell the, the millions of Canadians who uh, received emergency uh, support sure. at the outset of the pandemic from federal public sector workers right. that were all working remotely? Right. So for this government to try to say that it's not effective, I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I don't believe that. And when uh, Minister Forche was asked what are the benefits of doing this? Yeah. She couldn't answer that question.
2: In Stats Canada uh, uh, data shows that you know 90% of people working from home feel that they are just as productive, and 30 uh, 32% of the members feel that they're actually more productive on an hour basis.
0: Mr. Albert, uh, your union represents I think 160,000 uh, workers. You're in into uh, collective bargaining. Mm-hmm. Is the right to work from home is that something you're going to put on the on the
4: negotiating table? That's been on the bargaining table since June of last year. Since June of 2021, that's when uh, we went to the bargaining table, and it's been a bargaining demand uh, since last June for us. And, and again, that's just another uh, uh Come to the bargaining table and negotiate this. Don't try to do a blanket statement. That's simply not going to work. The federal government is very diverse. So a, a one-size-fits-all is simply not going to work.
0: Chris Elward, Jennifer Carr, thanks for joining us today. appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up, political predictions. The House of Commons has adjourned until the new year. What challenges lay ahead for the major federal parties and their leaders in 2023? Could we see an early election? Pollster Nick Nanos joins the Scrum next. Stay right here with Question Period.
1: And remember, our job is always, always to stand on the side of the common people. Their paychecks, their savings, their homes, their country. Mr. Polyev might choose to undermine our democracy
5: by amplifying conspiracy theories. He might decide to run away from journalists when they ask him tough questions. That's how he brands himself, and that's his choice. But when he says that Canada
0: is broken, that's where we draw the line. Parting shots from both the Prime Minister and the leader of the official opposition ahead of the holiday break are setting up what could be a political battle in 2023. And while 2022 is not over yet, we're looking ahead to what can happen in the new year. The Liberal NDP deal, which would keep the Trudeau government in power until 2025 in exchange for progress on shared priorities, could be at risk, with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh suggesting he could pull support over the health care crisis. Meantime, Pierre Polyev faced his first test as Conservative leader this past week when the Liberals won a federal by-election in Ontario. So what challenges lay ahead for the major federal parties and their leaders in the new year? The Scrum is here to answer that. Tonda McCharles is the parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. Marika Walsh is senior political reporter for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Nick Nanos of Nanos Research. Nick, let's start with you. You say this year could be the Hunger Games for the Liberal Party. What a... Do you mean by that? Absolutely. No, think of it this way. Justin Trudeau has been prime minister for seven years.
5: He's got to do two things. He's got to be looking over his shoulder and looking at the exit door because to be prime minister, usually eight, nine, ten years is the max. And I think for those that are sitting around the cabinet table, those that are in caucus and perhaps even those outside, yeah. they're probably looking at who might be voted off the island. You know, the reality now is that cabinet ministers, senior cabinet ministers that make a mistake... Will be losers. They will be taking themselves
0: off the political menu. It's going to provide for an interesting dynamic in 2023. Uh, Let's talk about Pierre uh, Polyev then. It's about a little over three months since he won the leadership. His focus has changed a bit, right? His messaging has changed since during the campaign. What are you watching for
6: from Polyev? I mean, he's had to make a virtue of necessity. You can't go around preaching the value of cryptocurrency these days, right? (laughs) So, um, look, Pierre Poilievre is still trying to uh, micro-target his message, his media message, to segments of the population, the voting population he hopes to draw from. But I think he's got a bigger challenge to broaden that messaging and if he hopes to sort of draw in more voters to that coalition. And what I notice from him is you... You're still seeing in some of his micro-targeted messaging the anger. Right. But I think his big challenge is how do you stoke anger, which is a motivating factor for mm. voters, uh, over the next, say, two years if the Liberal NDP deal doesn't collapse. Do you think
0: his personal style is going to have to change a little bit too? Because he does have sort of like an, a little bit of an abrasive tone.
6: It's already, I think, modified a bit. Yeah. You know, the night he took the leadership, um, he gave this uh, banger of a speech, yeah. really, yeah. Uh, that drew on his, um, w- uh, his marriage to a Venezuelan immigrant Mm. woman who herself is a huge political asset to Mm. him she smooths off the rough edges Mm. he's also revealed in a recent interview that he has a special needs child Mm. uh, in terms of educational needs so I think those are buffing some of the rough edges Mm. but you don't see him coming to the House of Commons with either a message of hope or optimism Mm. or policy programs that would I think unify a broader voting coalition.
0: Marika uh, Jagmeet Singh scored a bit of a win uh, this year with his deal with the Liberals on the confidence and supply and he managed to get this, force them into a position uh, where they had to pass this dental program. Uh, is that giving the party momentum going into this year or is that something that the Liberals are successfully claiming credit for?
7: I, I'm not sure that it's uh, there's a consensus that that deal was a political win for the oh. NDP. I think you could argue from the policy perspective, from their perspective of trying to advance progressive policies that they want, yes. But in terms of a political win in which their party benefits from the deal, I think that the jury's still out on that. And I think that's why we saw him trying to up the rhetoric about... The fact that he also has control over this deal, he could right. also pull the plug on right. the deal. I don't think any of us are expecting it to go to 2025. But also, the Liberals don't need the NDP to stay in power. They have the block. They have other options, and I don't think any of the parties are keen for an election right now.
0: Are, are you seeing that on the NDP numbers?
5: Well, you know, the thing about the NDP numbers is anything with a two in front of it is good news for Jagmeet saying <laughs> and they—they they, no, two. they split. I'm just two. yes, well, two something. Uh, uh, Why do we say uh, two would not I be. I know good. I'm the statistician here, but anything. <laughs> in yes, the twenty. It, sure. So it is good for him, bad for the uh, bad for the liberals. And I think if those NDP numbers creep into the twenties, he's probably going to feel pressure and think that perhaps he might want to take take advantage of a potential election but you know what the default is whenever we do polling no one ever wants an election yeah. even when we're supposed to have an election
0: this has been a pretty divisive period coming out of the pandemic uh, over covid measures the anti-mandate stuff the freedom of convoy are you seeing this in any of the numbers of a kind of a hardening of attitude are people now more committed to the parties they would naturally support and are there less accessible voters for other parties?
5: Yeah, absolutely. We have like the red Kool-Aid, the blue Kool-Aid, and the orange Kool-Aid, and a lot of them don't really change. You know, the interesting thing is that for most Canadians, they have formed opinions of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. They either like or dislike him. The other thing is interesting for Pierre Poiliev, a lot of the same. You know, but what's interesting is that both of those parties probably have to do the same thing to try to get the upper hand. Mm. For the conservatives, they probably have to get people that have not voted, people who haven't been able to pay the bills or struggling to pay right. the bills, get them to vote. And for the Liberals, you know, if you go back to 2015 one of the reasons why they won Marieke and I talked about this on another time is because uh, young people came out and voted so think of the regular voters locked down and not moving and parties trying to find new pools of voters that aren't necessarily
0: as engaged Marika said, uh, "We don't. No one really expects the election to come in June 2025. But when will it be exactly? I'm going to put you all on the spot <laughs> oh, yeah, here. Let a, let pr- me g- give me a, g- into my crystal yeah, give glass me into here. Your, your, your crystal question period mug. Uh, give me a a, a month in year. Uh,
6: look, I would say you could. It would be reasonable to think that it could happen late 2024." I that far off. That far off. I don't see an election in 2023 at all. I don't think it's in the NDP's um, interest. And so I think they will sustain this government and try and get some advantage on, you know, the d- implementation of dental care and some movement on pharma care and more health spending.
7: I think 2024 early is when the Liberals would be wanting to go, like, spring, not Sorry, winter. Okay, not winter. Please, winter. We don't need to fall, do that again. Yeah. I would say fall. Um, okay. I would say spring 2024 might be where they're looking. I just think that there are so many economic headwinds and other headwinds yeah. that we can't predict as yeah. the last two years yeah. show that that could really influence yeah. when they actually do pull the plug. And I think that they're less trigger-happy after the last experience.
5: Month, year, quickly. September 2024 after the recession is hopefully over. And until then, the new Democrats and the bloc will turn
0: themselves into political pretzels keeping this government alive. Right. the <laughs> Enos, thank you for joining us. Marika and Tonda are sticking around for our next segment. When we come back, what are the issues the feds are leaving hanging over the holidays? While well, the House and Senate adjourned this week, they left several contentious bills in limbo. What are the ones to watch? The Scrum dives into that next. Stay right here with Question Period. Legislative limbo. As the House of Commons adjourned this week, a number of controversial bills were left on the table. As we heard earlier in the show, the Liberals' divisive gun control legislation is on pause until committee resumes at the end of January. Meanwhile, the federal government and the provinces remain at an impasse over health care transfers as hospitals and health care staff are overrun. The cost of living also still top of mind for Canadians. Inflation is holding steady at 6.9% while the Bank of Canada continues to hike interest rates. The Senate also rose this week, but not before passing a number of bills, including the fall economic update. So, what are the big issues left hanging as we head into the new year? And what are the pieces of legislation to watch in 2023? The Scrum is here to answer that. Tonda McCharles and Mariko Walsh are back. And joining us this round is Annie Bergeron-Oliver, parliamentary reporter here in CTV News' Ottawa Bureau. So uh, I wanna ask you all about what you're watching for legislatively when MPs come back in January. Marika, let's start with you, what's on your radar?
7: I'm looking at the gun bill only because it turned into such an epic dumpster fire for the Liberals late in the session, and because of how remarkable it is that this is an issue that helped them win the last election just over a year ago, right. and it's now become such an issue for them because it was so badly managed.
0: Yeah, and and their overreach, their extension of increasing the sort of the scope of firearms that are that are covered, is now got prompted opposition from.
7: From everybody. For, from the NDP, <laughs> even
0: they're all going back Orange benches. Yeah.
7: Within. 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 Friendly fire yeah. within, friendly fire from yeah. premiers who are usually friendly with them, as well as conservative premiers, yeah. and also the rare effect of uniting the political spectrum against the liberals, which you don't often see the conservatives, yeah. NDP, and bloc agreeing. And it's not clear what the solution is. And Isn't
0: it a isn't danger of failing, do you think? I mean, it could just.
7: Well, th- that's the question, right? The liberals maintain that it can be changed and tweaked in committee. Part yeah. of what they say is that a lot of this is about misinformation and confusion, but the misinformation and confusion comes from them deciding Mm -hmm. to table this amendment late in the process, while Marco Mendicino, the minister responsible, was testifying at the Emergencies Act inquiry, and nobody was explaining what they were doing. It was just such a
8: communications failure. Why put this in at the last minute in this amendment at second reading, especially an amendment that's more than 400 pages, and the wording isn't very complicated. It is very complicated. And as Mariko was saying, it really united a whole bunch of groups, including Indigenous groups saying, we are not going to support this bill. So, the Liberals could have made these amendments at the very beginning they could have put in different definitions for the guns and they didn't they do and it just a second
3: reading it, it makes no clear. sense yeah. and their
8: communication yeah. is complicated they say that yeah. they're not trying to take guns from hunters but yet they're also saying that they need to take additional guns like the SKS off the market right. so that's exactly what they're doing they're they taking guns they ha- away they
6: haven't united everybody though there is an urban coalition of voters sure. that back gun control and yeah. pretty much anything the Liberals do on that will be a plus in their eyes so the Liberals haven't seen that it's a complete failure yet right but they're definitely dancing as fast as they can to fix it.
0: Your pick for something you're watching this year?
6: Mine is on health care, and that's because it's
8: an issue that every single voter is going to be paying attention to. You know, you look at this Christmas. We're seeing big cases in hospitals. We're seeing children's hospitals being overwhelmed. We're hearing the cases of the flu, RSV, COVID-19 are up, and wait times are up in hospitals. And so this is something that is going to be on the forefront when Canadians and the legislator comes back in January. And I think the problem here is we've been at an impasse for so long between the premiers and the federal government. Duclos mm. most recently said, said, this is now up to the province to uh, to deal with. It's up to the premiers. But, you know, at a certain point, somebody here is going to have to break this impasse. Either the federal government is going to have to increase transfers without the strings attached yeah. that they want, or the premiers are going to have to say, fine, just give us the money. Because ultimately, this impasse between the provinces and the federal government is hurting Canadians, and I think this Christmas season, a lot of Canadians are going to go into the hospitals, they're going to see, see that there are delays they are, and problems, the and they're room. going to blame it on someone. The debates are not
7: going to fix the wait right. times of the next two mm-hmm. weeks. But That's why it's so much more bigger, so much bigger, excuse me, and so much more complicated. And and I I think what we saw in the past might be a tell of what's going to happen. The liberals in the past have struck bilateral deals yeah. between yeah. provinces and I think that's what you'll end up seeing this You think of they're just
0: going to go one on they'll one? They'll pick of them up this, yeah, the this is what This is what Wip was yeah. not
7: at that press conference last week yeah. and I think that You think they to be the first one to, first I'm not one saying to they'll be the first one but I think it was notable No but mm-hmm. I also
6: think that that's the way that uh, the Liberal government when Jane Philpott was exactly. the exactly. minister that's did the, exactly the health care deal did. before signed bilateral deals with strings attached and I don't think this government's going to mental health. Exactly And those priorities are provinces one at a time Those are may or may not be mm-hmm. solely the Trudeau government's priorities, but they are also Canadians' priorities. They mm-hmm. are also the priorities for many of the provinces in terms of the pressure on their health care He kind of did that a little bit
0: with daycare. Yeah. You know, right. He, mm-hmm. went, he went province by province. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think it was Nova Scotia yeah. was the first one he got to Ontario sign on. The and then, uh, then there was pressure on the other provinces to get on. Or because nobody the
6: wants yet. to leave money on the table. Yeah, that's right. yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, let's, let's change it. Those are the big themes, or two of the big themes anyway. Uh, let's talk about the players this year. Lots of speculation on who might be moving around. There was a theory that at one point, I think it's been quashed, that Christian Freeland might be going Mm -hmm. to NATO, uh, but we have uh, an Ontario Liberal leadership race that could draw some possible contenders from the federal level. If you're playing House of Commons fantasy football here, <laughs> who would you be drafting as your as your low round draft pick? Who might be a rising star this year? T- well, t- start with you.
6: I'll just do like two rising stars in my view, both on the liberal and conservative benches. On the liberal bench, I think Sean Fraser, the immigration <laughs> minister, is performing very well and uh, is also really improving his French and mm. he's seen as a high mm-hmm. strong performer by the government and I think he's one to watch. On the conservative benches, there's a young, young backbencher there, uh, Adam Chambers, who's super smart, mm. worked for Jim Flaherty, worked in the finance uh, ministry when he was a staffer. But on um, the floor of the House of Commons and in committees he's a constructive, smart player. He's one to watch.
0: Marika, who are you on?
7: I'm actually watching for which liberals decide that their star can't rise in government and okay. are looking to the Ontario leadership, for example. Anybody in particular? I think Yasser Naqvi and, and Nate Erskine-Smith are, are key players. Yasser Naqvi is the Ottawa be Interesting, because yeah, he yeah, literally just he got elected. He had been the Attorney
0: General in Ontario previously. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. And
7: he's overlooked for cabinet
8: as well. A lot of people thought he would have been put into a cabinet well, position. Well, that's what
7: happens, right? When you're in government this long, there's a lot of people that, that are looking for cabinet and want cabinet, but you can't all fit in. So I think I'm looking to see who bails on the Liberals more than they And you think
0: Erskine-Smith has been sort of uh, Well, they've a both been bandied about. Uh, they've tra- both yeah, yeah. bandied
7: about their interest in the leadership, mm-hmm. said they're considering it or have been talked about as considering it, and I think they're likely people to enter the race.
0: Annie, quickly, who you want? I'm now?
8: looking at a potential question mark, which is Charles Souza. He just won the by-election with more than 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do they put him? He was a former finance minister right. in Ontario, a well-known politician. Do What did the Liberals do with him? Do they shuffle him? Do they make him a parliamentary back secretary bench. to finance? <laughs> Does it go to the backbench? He's going to be a wild card to watch. I, if
0: he was to go into cabinet at some point, if there's a shuffle, there's going to be some noses at a joint in the back exactly. benches too, right? Exactly, because He hasn't, done, he hasn't done the time. Yeah, but he has uh, provincially,
8: you know, so it'll be an interesting one to watch.
0: Yeah, okay, great. Excellent. Andy Bergeron-Oliver, Tonda McCharles, and Marika Walsh, thanks for joining us. That's Question Period for this week. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back here next week on Christmas Morning.